swings and drives one. Deep right field. Broad looks up. It's out of here. Curry for three. Got it. Struck him out. Now back up to the makes a diving catch in the end zone. Touchdown Giants. You're listening to Just Steven Sports with Steven Cusimano and Justin Lopiccolo. We are back here on Just Steven Sports. Steven Cusimano here alongside Justin Lopiccolo as NFL free agency is heating up. We've had a lot of trades made this week. In fact, the Philadelphia Eagles, it seems to be that they are unloading. As Chip Kelly left and went to the San Francisco 49ers, they traded away Kiko Alonso and Byron Maxwell to the Miami Dolphins, and they traded away the former rushing champion who only spent one year in Philadelphia, DeMarco Murray, to the Tennessee Titans. Justin, this is all very overwhelming. What's your reaction to this? I'm really wondering what kind of picks that, you know were traded in, in these two trades because uh, DeMarco Murray, you know, we all know the Titans hold the first pick in the draft, and, and I mean, you have to figure that's the only thing the Titans had to trade anyways. So we could see the Eagles atop, you know, atop the draft board. And it's really interesting when you look at the Titans because they're a team with a decently good offensive line, and we mentioned uh, the other day how the reason why DeMarco Murray excelled so much in uh, Dallas was because they had a great offensive line. So potentially that can be a very good fit for DeMarco Murray, but you look at his stats last year, only 702 yards, a career low in yards per carry at 3.6, where the year before that, as I mentioned, he was the rushing champion with 1,845 yards, averaging 4.7 yards per carry, so a change in scenery will definitely do him well, but let's talk about the Miami Dolphins, because it seems like they're loading up on defense. They offered Indomitian Sue that massive, just monster contract a few years ago, restructured that, made a little bit more cap space. And then they acquire Kiko Alonso and Byron Maxwell, who also last year for the Eagles underperformed, underachieved, but now they're on the Miami Dolphins, and reports are they're also favorites to sign Mario Williams. Yeah, and I think it's a good idea for them to stack up on defense because it, although their defense, you know, wasn't horrible last year, I, I have a little bit of confidence in their offense in Ryan Tannehill, and I know a lot of people don't really like him, but ever since he's been in the league, I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of potential out of him, and I think, you know, with, you know, Jarvis Landry, uh, at the wide receiver position, and maybe they could sign a good running back. You know, it's not a bad team. You know, as they've loaded up on the defensive side of the ball, the only body that they've really lost is Brent Grimes, and Brent Grimes is pretty much a perennial Pro Bowl cornerback. They decided not to restructure his contract. He didn't like that, so he's now off the team. Where's a good fit for one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL? Well, I think the Steelers might be a good fit because, you know, that's pretty much the only hole it seems to be on that team. They have a great offense, a fast offense, and they have William Gay at corner, but, I mean, they need somebody else. They need to sure up that secondary because it's not it's not like it was when Palomalu was there. It's, it's very different now, and I think that would probably be the best landing spot. Even New Orleans maybe with their, you know, uh, secondary always seeming to be, you know, the source of everyone else's points. So... Yeah, I think the Steelers would be a great place for Brent Grimes. Now, another guy who's talking about restructuring his deal is Victor Cruz. And Victor Cruz is a very interesting story because throughout his time with the Giants, he established himself as one of the best, if not the best, slot receiver in the NFL. And then his 2014 season, he tears his patellar tendon. And that, of course, is a huge problem for Victor Cruz. Still hasn't returned from that. Didn't play any more of the 2014 season or any of the 2015 season still isn't healthy after that injury. A lot of people thought it would be career-ending. And now here we are, the 2016 offseason, Victor Cruz entering his age 30 season. The Giants are trying to restructure his deal, but Justin, is his time in the NFL up? Well, the time that he did play, you know, as an undrafted free agent, he was great. He was a great wide receiver, and as a Giants fan, we definitely all loved him, and he was our favorite player. 
But then the injuries came, and they came, you know, one on top of another, and then aggravation of those those injuries, and, and then he doesn't play the whole season. Surprise. Like, every week it was like, oh, maybe Victor Cruz will come back, because the reports would say. And then all of a sudden, nope, he's not going to be back. And then they just decided to do a surgery and end it. But if he doesn't restructure this deal, I think he's going to be done in the NFL. Only because no one's going to pay him as much as the Giants are paying him. I think they're going to give him about $8 million or something this year, and maybe it goes up to, I think, 9 or 10 but he's not going to get there any, anywhere. He's not going to get that anywhere else in the league, especially when he's we won't. He's not even willing to restructure, which means he's not willing to take less than the money the Giants are giving them, than the money the Giants are giving him right now. So it, it's tough. I think he should just restructure and stick with the Giants because the fans love him, and you know he's been welcome there even as an undrafted free agent. He got a chance to play. Uh, I think you know if he if he leaves, it's going to be tough for teams to take a wide receiver with not that big of statistics behind him and then pay him $10 million a year. We mentioned a few days ago how great that would be if Odell Beckham Jr. and Eli Manning had another wide receiver in the picture, but let's talk about a few guys who have already come off the board. Let's start with the Chiefs and five-time Pro Bowl linebacker Tom Bahali, who have already agreed to a three-year deal. Yeah, it's really good for a guy like Tom Bahali, especially because I was telling Steven earlier, they need to keep that team together in every way they can because the Chiefs are a good team, and we saw that last year when they went on that almost miracle run. The defense doesn't really lack that much talent, and neither does the offense. So I feel like if they just come together, they could play well, especially in a division that's not super, super strong. A three-year deal is probably the perfect amount for a guy getting a little bit up there in age. Uh, but I think it's great for him and the organization to have uh, consistency in the locker room. And the biggest signing already this offseason is the Jacksonville Jaguars. They have agreed to a six-year deal with defensive lineman, former ex- former Denver Bronco and Super Bowl champion Malik Jackson, who I think in the playoffs proved that he's one of the best defensive linemen in the NFL, and they certainly gave him money like that. He's now the fourth, with this deal, he should become the fourth highest paid defensive lineman ever per year at $15 million per season, and I feel like he earned every dollar of this. Oh yeah, I think so too, but I mean, if you're Von Miller, you're probably pretty upset right now because he got a six-year deal, and then Von Miller got franchise tagged, and I always tell Steven and it's, it's so it doesn't make sense to me why you would have a guy like Von Miller who basically won you the Super Bowl and you just franchise tag him and say hey we're not really sure about you we're not really sure if you're going to be the consistent D lineman that we need when all he's done in his career is proven that he's a great D lineman so yeah it's upsetting and I think if you're Von Miller after this year you're going to demand a big contract from any team that you go to but from Leak Jackson is great because he proved that a guy who wasn't that great at the beginning of his career, can make something out of himself and get a gigantic deal like that, even at the age of 26. Another guy who didn't have a brilliant start to his career, but really blossomed as he grew with the New York Giants is Jason Pierre-Paul. And the reports coming in now are that he turned down more money elsewhere to stay with the New York Giants, who know very much about his fireworks incident that happened in July of last season. So, Justin, they signed him to a one-year contract, even with that big club on his hand. Well, I think it's a great. I think it was a great move for the Giants because they probably got him for a little bit cheaper than they normally would have. And that D line is going to grow into be the D line is going to grow into being a pretty damn good D line coming the next couple of years. I mean, we saw a few mock drafts where it said Shaq Lawson was going to be drafted by the Giants, and that's another D lineman with so so much potential. Seeing him in the uh, championship game just really opened my eyes to like what kind of player he was. And so if the Giants get him. Along with a couple of good defensive tackles, you know, the line's grown back into the one that won in the Super Bowl in 2007. And when we remember the Giants that beat the Patriots in the, the first time in the Super Bowl, uh, we don't think of the secondary because it really wasn't the secondary that won them that Super Bowl. Everyone remembers 
you know, Justin Tuck on the defensive line, taking guys down. And that's the type of team that I think the Giants want to be again. And I think they're striving to do that when they re-sign guys like Jason Pierre-Paul and maybe even draft a guy like Shaq Lawson. Let's talk about quarterbacks because we had arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time retire this week, definitively in Peyton Manning. And I'm looking at this list right now of all the records he holds. Look at all those records. I mean, wow, it's unbelievable. I think they're, I counted them before the show. I think there's 21 records on this list, so I'm going to rattle off probably the most important ones. Most career passing touchdowns, 539. Most career passing yards, 71,940. Single season touchdown record, most passing yards in a season. Most wins, including the playoffs with 200, which is just unbelievable that his 200th win happened to be in the Super Bowl. And I can keep going on about these, but it would probably take up the entire show. Really, just speak on Peyton Manning's legacy. Where does he fit in with the greatest of all time? Well, I think Peyton Manning, he really redefined the idea that, you know, uh, what a pocket passer is supposed to be. Because not only did he pass the ball with great accuracy, he managed the game with his voice more than anything else. And I think that's what makes him great. And he... He didn't ever had that much speed behind his his you know his ball all the time and even I mean everyone talked about it in the Super Bowl but I mean he was never he never threw a dart every single time he threw it it was just an accurate pass but that it didn't take an accurate pass or a, a fast thrown ball to make him great or a, a legend as a matter of fact it was the fact that he knew where everyone was going to be when he said hike he knew what was going to happen and the whole team just gathered around him, and he ran the game. He saw the defense. He picked it apart every single time. It had nothing to do with his accuracy or his arm. It had to do with him calling out everything and the players getting right behind him and leading them to a Super Bowl. And one of the hot topics in the past couple weeks has been that Peyton Manning was not actually as ready to retire as people thought despite his Super Bowl victory and pretty much the perfect way to retire. He didn't want to retire, and and he also said that he felt that the media was almost pressuring him to retire, saying that this was the perfect way to retire. How could you not retire? But realistically, a lot of people think that the reason Peyton retired is because of the lack of offers. He said that he would have been open to playing pretty much anywhere, but fact of the matter is the offers were just not out there. And do you think that that ultimately is what drove him to retirement? Well, I mean, I don't think he wanted to embarrass himself. And it's tough because if you're a player that's like a legend like that, and then you get, you know, stooped to begging for offers, he's not going to do that. He just, he'll sit around retired and, you know, maybe he'll get a phone call or two, but he'll have to decide what's more important to him, you know, the re- like to spend the rest of his life just enjoying it or, you know, going back to the NFL to a team that maybe isn't so good. And one thing that's really interesting to think about, as I just mentioned, like a guy like Brett Favre, he wasn't ready to retire. And as soon as Brett Favre got a phone call, he got up off his couch and he got back in the NFL so many times, as we know so well. And Peyton Manning, I think my prediction is going to be that he may be the next Brett Favre because I just mentioned how he doesn't want to retire. He feels like he can still play with the big boys. And I guess the question I'm getting at here is, Come July or June, when teams are starting to hit training camp, if one of these teams who needs a quarterback and doesn't draft one, say like the LA Rams or even the Cleveland Browns, was to call Peyton Manning and say, here's your offer, will you take it? Do you think there's any chance that Peyton Manning comes out of retirement this summer? No, I don't think he's anything like Brett Favre. I don't think he wants to embarrass himself that way, where he, if he says something, he means it. And if he says he's done in the league, I think he's going to be done in the league. I mean, he might get a few calls, and I, I think maybe one team will change their mind. But he has to look back and look at himself and say, you know, that's it. I'm uh, that's it. I'm done with the NFL, and it was a great ride. But there's no more. There's no reason to play. He doesn't need the money, and there's no reason to embarrass himself because if he goes to a team like the LA Rams, he's not going to win a Super 
Super Bowl, even if he plays like Tom Brady. So it doesn't really matter. And it seems the Broncos were almost expecting Peyton Manning to retire because even before he announced his retirement, they offered Brock Osweiler from ASU three years, $45 million contract. So it's kind of interesting with Brock Osweiler because he didn't prove very much in his days with the Denver Broncos, but he did prove that he can lead a team very deep into the playoffs and it's interesting to look at that offer, $15 million a year for a guy who's probably only started about five or six NFL games. What exactly do you think his value is? I think his value is a one-year franchise tag on that team. And I said it before, I think they should have done that. And I know you would have been paying him a lot of money to do that. I mean, they're offering him $15 million a year over three years. And the franchise tag might have been a couple million more. But at least you see what you have in your quarterback before you say, oh, this is the guy of the future. I mean, he didn't do enough last year for me to say. I, like, if, if I was a Broncos fan, I'd be pretty upset that they're even offering Brock Osweiler a three-year deal because that's just not fair. It's not fair to Peyton Manning to just get kicked to the curb, basically, even before he retires, for a guy who has proved nothing in his career. And and he, he might prove something. I think Brock Osweiler has a lot of potential, but not $15 million over three years potential, because now you're stuck with him. If you have him this year and he does nothing, then you're stuck with him for two more years, and you're going to pay him $15 million to be a backup for two years. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. His value to me is somewhere along the lines of two years... 20 million, two years, 15 million. He hasn't done enough in this league to even be. I mean, Kirk Cousins deserves more money than Brock Osweiler because at least Kirk Cousins have gone out and proved something. And Brock, like most quarterbacks, is very confident in his playing abilities. And he has said that he's going to test the market, but it looks like right now his market is narrowed down to the Broncos, who know what he's capable of, and the Houston Texans, who maybe you can argue are one good quarterback away from being a Super Bowl contender. So, it looks like it's going to come down to those two teams. The Broncos have taken the first shot, three years, $45 million, and it seems like at this point it may become a bidding war. Do you think the Texans will outbid the Broncos, or do you think they're more comfortable drafting a quarterback? Well, I'm, I'm 100% sure the Texans aren't comfortable ever drafting a quarterback because I think they've, they've taken too many quarterbacks just on a whim, and it hasn't worked out. So I think the Texans will outbid the Broncos only because the Texans will be more, even more willing to overpay than the Broncos because they're desperate for a quarterback. It's their time now with so many good pieces around them with Jadavian Clowney, J.J. Watt, DeAndre Hopkins. I mean, those are good players. And if you don't have a quarterback who can throw the ball to DeAndre Hopkins and your defense shuts guys down, it doesn't mean anything. If you have no quarterback, you're not going to win. And we all know, we talked about it before, it's a, it's a quarterback league, and if you don't have one, you're not going to win a Super Bowl no matter what. And unless you're the Denver Broncos with Peyton Manning back there running the offense. But if the Texans make an offer, they'll win the bidding war only because they're more willing to overpay than even the Broncos. And that's an interesting point. Sometimes it's definitely better to take a shot on a guy who hasn't proven a lot in the NFL, but certainly has proven more than somebody who hasn't even been drafted by an NFL team yet. And you look at the quarterback free agent market, and it's extremely bare. We just mentioned Brock Osweiler. We mentioned Robert Griffin III the other day. And we also had the Jets cutting Ryan Fitzpatrick, which is interesting because Ryan Fitzpatrick, prior to his career with the Jets, was never really a great quarterback, always played for pretty mediocre teams like the Bills and teams of that caliber. But it, it just goes to show with Ryan Fitzpatrick, if you put a great supporting cast around him with receivers like Eric Decker and Brandon Marshall and a great offensive line, he's capable of doing big things. And I feel like any of these guys could have a really good season with a great supporting cast with a team like the Texans, and it raises a good question. Would you rather take a shot on one of these three quarterbacks on the market, or would you rather draft a quarterback? Well, I think there's a little bit of talent there and with RG3 and Ryan Fitzpatrick, and there's even Brock Osweiler. And, and But I feel like you can't overpay. You can't pay too much for these guys. And especially, you know, I, I just said before, Brock Osweiler, he's good, and he has played a few games, and he's scored a few touchdowns, but... 
it doesn't mean he's worth fifteen million. And I'd be more comfortable paying a guy like RG three fifteen million than Brock Osweiler just because he's proved more. I mean, it's just these these mediocre quarterbacks are getting way too much money in this league, and I think it makes them it makes them arrogant. Like Brock Osweiler should have taken three years forty five million for a guy like Brock Osweiler. He shouldn't have even listened to another offer. He should have took the money and ran because he's not going to get in two years. He's going to realize he might not be worth that contract. Maybe he will be, but from what I've seen, I don't know if he's even gonna if he's going to throw a touchdown pass this whole year. Nobody really knows anything yet, and I feel like if you just wait for Brock Osweiler to grow a little bit, then you were to pay him. But if I had to take a shot on these guys or draft picks, I'd definitely take a shot on these guys, even if I had to overpay just a little bit. Because, you know, the quarterback draft class this year, and we'll talk about it later, isn't very good. I, I think the, those three guys have a better chance of making a bigger impact on your team in a win-now league than guys on the draft board this year. And now let's talk about RG3 for just a minute. We love talking about this guy, and he's really interesting because... He's proven he can take a team into the playoffs and play pretty well, but he's also very injury-prone, and it brings up a good question. Do you think that when a team signs RG3, is he going to be signed as a backup, or is he going to be signed as a starting quarterback? I think he'll be signed as a backup. I think he should be signed as a starting quarterback. Like, for a team like the Texans, that would be I think that would be great. But I think he's when he gets signed, he'll be a backup. Maybe to, I always say the Cowboys, because I feel like the Cowboys are in need of a good backup quarterback, especially with what happened last year. But... I think he'll be signed as a backup for a team like the Cowboys. If he's a starter, it'll probably be like the Texans or the L.A. Rams, but I don't think even think that's very likely because it seems like the L.A. Rams would have made a move on their quarterback position by now if they were going to try to do anything, and it just seems like they're waiting around too long. But if, if, if RG3 goes, he'll be a backup. If Ryan Fitzpatrick goes, he'll probably be a starter. And, of course, Brock Osweiler will be a starter wherever he goes. Well, it seems we'll have to wait until April 28th for the quarterback dominoes to fall. That's draft day. A lot of teams are going to draft quarterbacks. A lot of teams are going to pass on quarterbacks. And I think that's when a lot of teams are going to start signing guys like Ryan Fitzpatrick and Robert Griffin III. Up next, we're going to talk some baseball. Yoannis Cespedes, Johnny Peralta. What do the two of these guys have in common? Find out next year on Just Steven Sports. Broken bat. That is caught. Going off the back is Cespedes. And the game is over. Yoannis Cespedes just took off and he's doubled off on the soft line drive. And now the Royals are one win away. There you hear one of Yoannis Cespedes' many postseason mistakes for the New York Mets last year. And you can argue he's the reason they were in the World Series, but. When you look at the stats a little bit deeper, Yoannis Cespedes in the playoffs last year for the Mets batted 222, which is drastically under where he batted for them in the regular season. Following the trade deadline, Yoannis Cespedes batted 287 with 17 home runs for the New York Mets, but you seem to think that one of his major vulnerabilities was exposed towards the end of the season. Yeah, in the playoffs, I mean, when me and Steven were watching the games, I, I would tell him, I said, when, on an 0-2 count or a 1-2 count, here comes the curveball in the dirt because he swung at it almost every single time and they struck him out 17 times and you said in the postseason and that's that's unreal and I, I honestly I feel like 10 or 11 of those might have been on a curveball that grazed the dirt and he swung teams saw it because it was on national television and now he has to we have to hope that he noticed it before they noticed it because for you want Cespedes, he his performance this year entirely depends on if the Mets are World Series contenders I think because if he can hit home runs and drive runs in he might be the guy with the most power on that team he needs to drive runs in and if they're just if they know how to get him out and he hasn't realized or the Mets training staff hasn't realized that's his biggest vulnerability then they're gonna have a big problem now do the Mets have any reason to be concerned here because what you just said 
seems like teams may be catching on to this. And if a lot of teams catch on to this, specifically in the National League East, this could be a huge problem for the Mets. So do you see this becoming a trend, or does he get right back on track? I think he's smart enough to you know get right back on track. And the way I look at it is he has so much power. You want to assess, but this has so much power that they can't throw a low curveball every single time. And they can't avoid him every single time. So even if he hasn't learned his lesson, I think he'll still bat 260, 270, and he'll hit 25 home runs at least, I think. Because they're not going to throw a curveball low every single time You know they, they throw it. It'll be a fastball inside, and he'll crank it. A fastball outside, he'll go oppo. I mean, he's a good he's a good enough player to where he'll realize what he's doing wrong. He's an older guy. He's probably went through this trend before, and I think he'll learn from it, and I think in the National League East, the Mets will still take the division. Even though Ioannis Cespedes has this weakness, I think he'll learn from it, and the whole Mets team will learn from it, and they'll grow. I feel like this is just part of the growing process that comes with every single major league hitter. You see all the time that players change their batting stance, or they change the way they swing. I feel like it's just a matter of time before Ioannis Cespedes figures this out. In fact, he may have already figured it out in spring training. He's hitting really well for the New York Mets, and like you said, I think that even if he has a little bit of a rough patch to start the season, I think that the Mets have enough to cover that, and they have enough to win the National League East, but what about Johnny Peralta? Because I think one of the things that makes your team successful in spring training is not having a winning record and winning games and scoring runs, but staying healthy, and already the St. Louis Cardinals have had trouble staying healthy as Johnny Peralta injured himself this week, and he's out two to three months. He's usually an all-star every single year for the Cardinals, and this could be very bad for them because you look at that division now, and they had the three teams that posted the three best records in baseball last year, so you take out an all-star player like Johnny Peralta from the Cardinals lineup, and this could hurt very badly for them. How badly does it hurt them, though? I think it hurts them pretty bad because, I mean, he's already 33 years old. You kind of see, you know, it's sad because some guys age differently. Guys like, you know, Yadier Molina get hurt occasionally. He's also 33 years old, but his his career is not, you know, waning away. It kind of like when you look at Johnny Peralta, you see these injuries and injuries, and I don't know. It's it's frustrating to see from a Cardinals perspective because you have a guy who can be an all-star every single year. I mean, aside from even the injuries, he got suspended 50 games, and it's just like you see his career slowly draining away, and there's guys that you have hope for that are even the same age as he is at 33 years old. I think it means a lot for them because he's a lot, he's a source of hitting, and they they need some bats on that team now that Hayward's gone, and I think they'll still be good this year, but in that division, it's going to be tough to win it if all your guys aren't healthy. I think regardless of whether Johnny Peralta's playing or not, it would be very hard for the Cardinals to win the division this year. And yes, they're great every year. And yes, they usually have one of the best farm systems in all of baseball and have these players that come out of nowhere to be all-stars. But I just feel like the Chicago Cubs are going to be overbearing for not only the National League Central, but the entire National League to overcome this year. And when you have the Cardinals in there who already have lost one of their superstars, it would have been hard for them to win this division anyway. And when you lose one of your stars like that, it'll be even harder, especially when you consider that they have the Pirates to overcome too. But as I just mentioned, this is a very competitive division, and he's going to miss a lot of divisional games. Does this completely eliminate the Cardinals from winning the National League Central? I don't think the lack of his presence eliminates the Cardinals. I think the talent in that division eliminates the Cardinals. I mean, with or without him, I think the Cubs or maybe even the Pirates could take that division. But if I had to, I mean, I think the Cubs have just gotten so much better as a team to make it so where the Cardinals, now they don't have a chance, but I don't think they'll stay healthy enough the whole entire year to stay with teams like the Cubs or the Pirates and the young talent that they have on those teams. Up next here, we're going to talk about a piece of history, a historical night that happened this past week. Hear about it next here on Just Steve and Sports. It's celebration time at Oracle. 19,596 have watched history 
that. 45 straight home wins. But Oracle, the greatest home crowd, is now rewarded with the longest home winning streak in NBA history. 45 in a row. They move to 56 and 6. The Warriors said if they get near a streak and a record, they want to break it. And tonight, mission accomplished. 119 to 113. Curry with 41. Clay with 27. And just a great night at Oracle on a very odd game. But it ends the right way. And that's in a Warrior victory. If you were alive on March 7th, 2016, you witnessed NBA history as the Golden State Warriors won their 45th game in a row at home. Just historical season that the Warriors are putting on. And yet another record that this Warriors team has broken following their big upset loss against the LA Lakers. But once again, Justin, this team is giving us a lot of good things to talk about. Because when you win 45 games at home, and not only the Warriors, but a couple other teams, it starts to look like home field advantage is more important in the NBA than any other sport. Oh yeah, it definitely does. Definitely more than any other sport also. Because when you hit that shot, you know, you hit that shot, that fadeaway jumper, or whatever it is, to win the game or even to tie it up, or whatever it is, the crowd goes wild. And once the crowd goes wild, you feel like you're you're on top of the world. Everyone in the stadium, thousands of people are behind you, and the, your confidence level just goes up, and the whole team confidence level just goes up. And when you're in a closed environment like a stadium, the sound is just bouncing off the walls, making for an amazing atmosphere, so much louder and uh, so much different of an atmosphere than, say, if you were cheering outside at a baseball game. Definitely, and, and f for football, I mean, it, it definitely has an effect but it mostly has a negative effect on the other team more than it has a positive effect on the home team. And what I mean by that is if the if the opposing team is going out there and trying to you know start an 80-yard drive and the, the crowd's screaming their heads off and they can't get the play across and no one understands what the quarterback's trying to say, it could have a negative effect on the team. But for the home team, yeah, you make a nice catch, the crowd goes wild, but it doesn't make you... It doesn't make you have superhuman ability so you can catch anything or the quarterback can throw anything. For, for basketball, you might have a little bit more confidence when you take that shot. You might not have taken if the crowd wasn't so loud. I feel like that's a really interesting topic because when you look at the NFL, like you said, one of the biggest factors is certainly the crowd noise when, you, uh, when it's affecting the other team and they can't hear each other communicating. But at the same time, it can also be where the team plays. Like if you play at Soldier Field like the Bears, certainly the weather is always going to be an issue there. And if you're a team like the 49ers who play at Levi Stadium, the turf can be an issue and you're used to playing on that. But when you shift it over to the major leagues, it's teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox who have a little bit of an advantage at home because of their ballparks, how they have shorter porches. You look at a team like the Yankees who have a 315-foot porch in right field, that's obviously a huge advantage over a team like the Mets who has a 335-foot porch in right field. So in the MLB, it comes down to dimensions and that kind of home field advantage. But in the NBA, you just said it. The crowd noise plays such a different role than it does in any other sport like the NFL or the MLB. In the NBA, if you're getting loud, then Steph Curry's going to take a shot that he might not have taken if the crowd was quiet, and that's the type of advantage that the Warriors fans give them over the rest of the NBA at home. You know that whether Steph Curry buries a three three minutes into the game or with three minutes left in the game, you know that Oracle Arena is going to be just as loud either way. But when you look atop the Western Conference, you see the Golden State Warriors are 27-0 at home, as we know they won 45 straight, and then you look at the San Antonio Spurs, they're 30-0 at home, so it looks like... You see this more so in the NBA than any other sport. And I think that proves our point from before that, you know, the NBA home court advantage has the biggest advantage to it because 
yeah, like we said, the other sports do play different roles, but they're mostly not, they're not really fan-affected roles. They're more weather or, you know, dimensions of the ballpark sort of importance. And I, I think we were debating earlier whether or not they're going to ever lose at home, and it's a definitely a good debate. I mean, the Warriors haven't lost at home, the Spurs haven't lost at home, and I really don't see them losing at home at any time, at any point in the near future. And we were looking at the standings earlier, and I think it's a true testament to what home court advantage really does, because the a team like the Cavs are 27 and 6 at home, but they're 17 and 12 on the road. And there's, I mean, there's so many examples. The Thunder are 25 and 8 at home, but 18 and 12 on the road. And it makes a big, big difference, it seems like. Even against, you could lose against an, a subpar team because they're at home and they just happen to be feeling it that night and the crowd is behind them that night. And so it definitely has a big impact on the game and it's not going to change anytime soon. And I feel like another good example is this is not just exclusive to the NBA. As I look at some college basketball teams, the Oregon Ducks from the Pac-12 are 18-0 at home and 5-5 on the road. And the California Golden Bears are also 18-0 at home and 4-7 on the road. So I feel like in the NBA, the crowd noise and the entire atmosphere play such a huge role in how you win these games. But Justin, there's a few teams in the NBA who are really just massively struggling with how to win games, and that would include the Philadelphia 76ers, this year the Phoenix Suns, the LA Lakers, the Nets, the Timberwolves, and it brings up another good question. What do these teams actually have to do to be competitive? We'll start with the 76ers because I feel like the answer for each one of these teams is going to be different. Oh yeah, it definitely is. We we're going to have to definitely, we're going to definitely have to go one by one with teams like this. Uh, the 76ers are kind of stuck, and I, I know it's not really a true answer to the question, but they are. I mean, they made the draft picks they made. Uh, Jalil Okafor is a good player with potential, and a lot. Of, I could say that about half their players on their team. But the, the way they wanted to do it was build from the bottom up, and it's taking a very, very long time, and it's going to take at least four more years, I think, before they can be competitive, unless there's, of course, major trades made or a big free agent wants to go there. But a team like this that just drafts high up every single time isn't going to be competitive because there's no experience on that team. Ish Smith is probably one of the more experienced players on that team, and he hasn't done anything in the NBA to prove he's better than a mediocre player. And so it's frustrating for a 76ers fan to hear an answer like that, but, I mean, it's really true. What can they do right now? They can't. They have no pieces to trade besides maybe draft picks, but if you trade a draft pick in the NBA, you're not going to get a guy like Kevin Durant or a guy like Carmelo Anthony. It's going to take a lot more than that, a lot more than just one first overall pick to do that. And I think they just need to keep doing what they're doing and, and hope in a couple of years one of those players blossoms into a superstar because if you draft so high up so many years in a row, one guy is bound to explode and just be the next big thing. Now, they're last in the East. You look at the Lakers. They're last in the West this year, and they made, as we talked about on our last show, one of the biggest upsets in NBA history and upsetting one of the greatest shooting teams of all time in the Golden State Warriors. Kobe's retiring this year. You have a couple young players there like D'Angelo Russell and Julius Randle. They've had some early draft picks. They're going to have another early draft pick this year, but what do the LA Lakers, one of the biggest franchises in all of sports, need to do to be competitive within the next two or three years? Well, I don't think it'll be very hard for them to be competitive within three years, only because Kobe's contract is, is going away, so is he. And so now you have time to rebuild a little bit. And I mean, it's still LA. They could still afford to bring a big guy in. And it's, you know, people know the Lakers for their legendary, you know, the legendary runs in the playoffs and their championships. And now that Kobe's gone, uh, maybe another free agent wants to step in and prove that he can be the next big thing, just like Kobe was. And I think it'll be an attractive spot for free agents. I I know uh, Russell Westbrook has talked about going there. And I don't know about Kevin Durant, but... They just they take they should take the draft pick while they have it this year and build around that. I think they'll acquire a big free agent, whoever 
it may be, someone who can carry that team to a few wins. I think they'll make the playoffs, and they'll be competing within three years, definitely, I think. That's definitely what separates the Lakers from the rest of these teams, is that they are that big market, and they're historically one of the best franchises of all time in the NBA, so they definitely have that advantage over the rest of these teams, but you and I, on Wednesday, are going to get to see the Phoenix Suns in action um, very cheap tickets, very cheap parking because they've been really bad this year. What do the Suns need to do to be a better team? Well, the Suns have a chance to be good within three years, but it's going to be right around the three-year mark, I think. they. And the only reason I say three years is Devin Booker could definitely be the reason that they compete at that time because he is. A, we've talked about him before on the show, how we think he's a great shooter. and He's a superstar. I mean, he really, he really is a superstar already, and people don't notice because he's on the Phoenix Suns. But a lot of a lot of teams are going to look at the Suns and say, "Wow, they have a lot of young talent." I mean, Alex Len has performed a lot better than people thought he would, and it's it's good to see them growing. T.J. Warren's not that bad. The injuries with Brandon Knight and Eric Bledsoe, they just need to be a hundred percent healthy, and then maybe get rid of a guard like Brandon Knight. I mean, Brandon Knight has a little bit of trade value, I think, and if you can trade him for maybe a small forward or a big man, because Devin Booker should be starting at shooting guard next year. I mean, without a doubt. So with Bledsoe and Booker, you have two guards that can compete with almost anybody in the league. And then with Alex Len at the center, and if they can get rid of Tyson Chandler, they'll have a lot more cap space. So I feel like if they can just make the right moves, which seems like the Suns don't do all the time with their general management, but if they can just make the right moves, the Suns can compete in the playoffs, I mean, around there in about three years. Now the Brooklyn Nets reinvented their entire franchise just a few years ago with Jay-Z coming in and making a new logo, moving them to Brooklyn, the new stadium in Barclays Center. And they're still a relatively new team. Um, not as many young players as the other teams that we just named. So what does a team like the Nets need to do to reinvent themselves once again and be competitive in the Eastern Conference? Well, the problem with the Nets is they went all in. I mean, when, when Jay-Z came there and they made the new team, they went all in with big contracts to you know a guy like Joe Johnson, and it just obviously it didn't work out. So if you're the Nets, you have to get rid of all the cap space you can get rid of and then try to get a free agent there. I mean, with Jay-Z there, it can't be too, too hard, and it's still you know Brooklyn, New York. So they're not going to be bad forever, but if they don't do something now, they're going to be the exact same team next year, and that's what I fear for for all Nets fans is that you might see the exact same team next year depending on if, how much they care about you know putting – big names and big places like Brooklyn and being competitive, but they might not compete for five or six years, just basically depending on the management. Now, to me, it's really interesting that the Minnesota Timberwolves are not good because as I go down their roster, they have a lot of really good players in Andrew Wiggins, Carl Anthony Towns, Ricky Rubio, Zach Levine. They have a lot of really good young players that they drafted early on, and you can't even say that they didn't pan out because all of these guys are potential superstars, but Nonetheless, they are putting L's on the board, and I'm just confused as to why. Yeah, that's really tough, and I think it just might be a chemistry problem, but I, I've seen that team put up 130 points before. I mean, they have they have offensive firepower, but it's tough because when you get a lot of young players, you have to make it work in a different way because they all haven't really worked together before. They might be like nervous around each other at first, but they have a lot of young talent, and I think they'll be good, and then once Kevin Garnett leaves, they'll have another spot on the roster, so... I feel like if they just give it a little bit of time, you'll you'll have those guys growing into great players and they'll be playoff contenders. But I mean, all these teams we're talking about, the one that has the chance a chance to compete in three or less than three years, I think is probably the Lakers only because of their attractiveness as a free agent destination. But they all will be good at some point. You know, if you're fans of these teams, don't worry. It's they are growing. They're all 
besides maybe the Nets, they're all taking the right the steps in the right direction to be a good team. So if they can just make a few changes, I think me and Steven both agree that these teams will be atop the standings in less than five years. That's going to end it here on Just Steve and Sports. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Just Steve Sports. No end in the middle at Just Steve Sports. We'll be back on Monday night with another fantastic show. Until then, everybody enjoy the NFL free agency gates opening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. With Justin Mopiccolo, I'm Steven Cusimano, and you have been listening to Just Steve and Sports.